Hello and welcome to The Run-In. Coming up later in the episode, we have an interview with uh, ex-elite Murray Strain. But first of all, we've got a little bit of, we will go through some of the news that's maybe been happening in the, the last few weeks since the last episode. And first off, it's not really news, but anyway, we are looking for sponsors on The Run-In podcast. So if you want to contribute to our running costs, then, and if you are involved in maybe an event, if you do some mapping, if you sell shoes, if you print maps uh, or any involved in anything and you want to pay us some money to advertise, to sponsor one of some of our lovely episodes of The Run-In, um, then we are looking for sponsors. So please, uh, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Next up, we were talking, Will, a few um, episodes ago about, well, we've been talking a lot about fair play in the IOF Mm -hmm. and how they're going to deal with this. And one thing that's come out recently is that the IOF are looking for people to contribute to their fair play e-learning. So the idea is you let them know what you think is important, what people should train about. So we're really encouraging people to get in touch with them and be able to shape the issues around fair play and what they think should be included. Yeah, so um, some comms went out to all the World Cup registered orienteers um, for, I think, every international federation to to get involved with the IOF and help them to build this structure around how we get a uniform kind of understanding of what fair play is, what it should be, and how everyone would adhere to the same guidelines across the board. So kind of a good initiative um, to get everyone on the same page to ensure that of the issues that raise their head at the China World Cup at the end of last season don't really occur again. And, uh, and yeah, just get everyone on the, um, on the same wavelength in terms of what is allowed, what isn't allowed. And I guess it might seem like a, a kind of bit of a silly thing to say in terms of people need to understand what, where kind of ethics and fair play sit. But given the cultural spread of um, the orienteering world, you know, it's important to, to get th- these things nailed down now and um, I kind of stop any issues um, cropping up in the years to come. We'll see where that goes and um, hopefully there'll be a lot of progress in that area and um, I know the Athletes Commission are involved heavily with that and there's some communication going on between them and the RF as well at the moment so we'll see what comes of that in the next few weeks because I'm sure it's not the last thing we'll hear. Yes, well this saga continues um, but we also have in the last uh, few weeks got the uh, selections for the British Orienteering uh, squad 14 men and 10 women selected on this um, senior squad with Ralph Street, Chris Jones and Kat Taylor all in the individual podium category uh, of the Performance Athlete Awards. There's also uh, Alice Leake, Charlotte Ward, Chris Smithard, Megan Carter-Davis and Peter Hodgkinson also in the all continue in the Relay Podium um, Award. And there are some new faces to the squad. Some of these have been, um, in fact, I think all of these have been uh, competing at World Cups before, but Cecilia Anderson, Sarah Jones, Ben Mitchell and Adam Potter and of course Fiona Bunn who's now a first year senior all uh, now named in the squad as well so of course a lot of uh, familiar names the full list is up on the British Orienteering website Will you are one of the names on the list so from someone who's never been in the squad what does it mean to be on this list of names? Um, so I guess the uh, the parameters of the squad have changed quite considerably as we'll hear from from Murray later on in the episode to uh, over the last few years from 
where the squad used to be to where the squad is now. And um, I guess it's all based around funding of the sport from federations and institutions around the country. So you've got Sport England and UK Sport and Sport Scotland and the like giving giving funding to British Orienteering to support their athletes. And this kind of only goes so far. There's only a certain pool of money now with the amount of focus on the Olympics in the uh, in Britain as mm-hmm. a kind of cultural move. So you see sports even in the Olympics struggling to receive full allocated funding. So um, the ability for the squad to fully support its athletes has kind of dropped off compared to where it used to be when mm. um, British Orienteering received full lottery funding, which was obviously a massive shame. So um, in terms of uh, training camps, the juniors have a great program uh, in terms of camps over the winter. The seniors, there's, there's not as much, but we're always able to join in with um, the junior camps if we'd like to, and um, if we can lend support there. Um, some of us get involved with that as well. There's also camps that we help to organise ourselves in different countries but I guess the um, the focus is kind of on us as athletes and, and being within the squad means you've got a real visibility to mm. the selecting panel I, I don't want to say that um, being in the squad gets you selected because that isn't the case just mm. because you're in the squad doesn't mean you're going to be selected for competition you still have to perform at races you still have to show that you're willing to commit to the sport that you're willing to race and compete at a high level and train at a high level as well you're not just given mm. an entry into a competition but it helps you get your foot in the door of selection um, panel conversation so um i guess the the main benefit is the fact that you, you kind of you're in that shop window already you're part of the squad therefore you're going to be considered for a selection place possibly over someone who isn't um isn't in the squad and uh and yeah it's it's that kind of recognition where you can you can take that to your university your school your mm-hmm. your employer and go look i am i am in this squad i'm in this bracket of people who is deemed good enough by my federation to to compete at this level can you support me and kind yeah. of be proactive about it and go out go out yourself and get that support as well because at the end of the orienteering is an individual sport and you can't be solely reliant on on people to just give stuff to you so um it allows you to be self-reliant and support your going out and getting as well so so yeah big a big benefit in terms of your personal selection but also in terms of what you can do um with your own career as well in terms of the the podium awards that you mentioned so the the individual ones and the relay it's a an expenses based financial support which those athletes receive so whether that be for training camps for flights for physio treatments so as you say for chris uh, ralph and cat they're in that bracket of individual podiums so the british federation has deemed them most likely to get an individual medal at this year's international competitions therefore they they have that bit more financial support from where we do have financial um support available yeah and, and actually not being part of the squad you can still get selected for stuff so for example yeah. graham griswood with his involvement um in the upcoming world championships 2022 um he had he decided last year that he was going to almost not i'm not retire but you know not not put himself up for selection for the squad because he thought that would clash interest with his role for the world championships but he can still get selected for you know this year's um european championships uh, which are forest ones yeah. in estonia so yeah. um it's it's yeah not yeah. not the be all and end all in terms of selections 
No, absolutely. And um, you had people like uh, Cecilia Anderson and Adam Potter getting selected last year when they weren't in the squad as well. So um, it's not just Gigi and having that kind of massive back catalogue of um, mm. that Palmares that he has of major international results. You know, you, if you have good enough domestic results and, and prove that you're at a certain level, you can get selected regardless. So I, I wouldn't say that anyone who hasn't made it into the squad should be discouraged from from still going for international competition, you know. They're not out of the, uh, and this is kind of junior level and senior level. Um, mm. They're not out of the of the fight just because they're not in the squad. You know, I think I got booted out of the squad in 2015. I said booted out. <laughs> you know, that's not that dramatic. Um, I, I wasn't performing very well in 2015. I got dropped, so I had that winter not in the squad. And then in 2016, I had a pretty good year. Got back in for the World Cup, World Unis, and then uh, came sixth at World Unis. So. I think you can do pretty well when you're not um, not in the squad as well. But yeah, being in it just helps. It does. Right. Uh, I think it's time now to move on to our main interview of today's episode, which is with Murray Strain. Welcome, Murray. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, great. Thanks, to, thanks for having me on. I've been enjoying the podcast so far, so um, looking forward to being part of it. I'd like to start kind of at the beginning of your orienteering career if you can so can you just talk us through kind of how you initially got into orienteering and what led you to i guess get your first um gb vest as it were at uh, jaywalk in 2001 i did my first orienteering course when i was three months old uh, oh wow oh, that is impressive started with a blue course as well carried around uh, a blue course in salton woods which for anyone in the edinburgh area will know that's uh, well there's kind of only one way your orienteering quality can go from from there. Um, <laughs> so my parents were part of that generation in the, the kind of early 80s when the sport was was booming and they were looking for a, a family sport to get to get into. So it took me along and first it was getting dragged along on a Sunday morning when you got more into the sort of teenage years and junior tours and things like that, looking for chances to yeah go and enjoy racing and enjoy trying to get selected for things um so yeah the, the junior tour system was a great motivator for that and then i think yeah scott joss was a great thing as well so the scottish junior orienteering squad those weekends away you know with your mates that was a, a great part of it and then each year i kind of took it a bit more seriously got a bit more focused there were some great sort of inspirational local runners around the Edinburgh scene at that time people like uh, Jamie Stevenson was kind of coming to the top of his or getting to the top of the the sort of British scene um, and as well we had uh, World Cups in the Lake District in 1998 and then World Champs in Inverness in 99 so I guess I was always aware of international orienteering and you know the chance to represent Great Britain um, mm. Although I have to say, actually, I wasn't in 98 and 99. I wasn't like a super, super fan of orienteering. I was kind of at those races, but almost more focused on what I was doing on M16 than uh, <laughs> what, uh, what the results were at the top of the podium. Yeah, 2001 was an interesting one. It was the first jaywalk. And I think I got a little bit lucky there um, because some of your your older listeners might remember that was the year of foot and mouth when the whole orienteering season mm. got, uh, got uh, called off. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And... The, the footnote to that was the first race of the season before the, the outbreak had begun. Some unknown young junior, first year, like a 17-year-old, a first year 
junior ranks, effectively, called Graham Gristwood turned up and beat everyone at <laughs> ah. a middle distance race. And, and he's never done anything since. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, and then the rest of the season got called off and the test races were kind of held in Edinburgh on random local patches that we could get access to, which probably favoured me. Gigi missed out and, yeah, like we say, whatever happened to him. Um, yeah. So that's sure. it. So they, they just put on these kind of ad hoc selection races just to get something in the calendar and get something done then? Yeah, exactly. We had... Oh, wow. It was basically a squad weekend. It was kind of close to just people that might be in contention, really. Oh, um, I never realised that. I even remember one of them was a, just a fell race in Arthur's seat. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, oh, whole, yeah. the whole orienteering season was called off. Like, nobody could do any orienteering that year. Yeah, pretty much from, I think, the outbreak started. It started, we were on a training camp in Spain, February time, I think, maybe start of March. And just the you know public access to the countryside was basically closed Mm. from the start of spring until the summer there was a six day in fort william but it was kind of hampered and then the british champs were held late in the year i think in october in uh in newborough that year so yeah there was no jk that year there was no other real domestic racing yeah i have very loose memories of that i think i was only eight at the time and i just remember the fact that i didn't have to go orienteering at weekends and that being quite quite pleased about that fact <laughs> at the time. You were, yeah, you must have been about sort of 10 years behind me in your enthusiasm for orienteering. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay, so then you had no orienteering for the whole season in the UK. You're then into the Jaywalk team based on a, a fell race on Arthur's seat. <laughs> what's, what's it like then, hitting your first, your first Jaywalk? Because I don't think there was a sprint at that time either. It was just, was it just the long and the relay? And maybe a short uh, distance. Short, short relay, short long and relay, yeah. Short long um, relay. Yeah, the short was good. So it was in Hungary, um, same terrain where uh, World Unis were a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, I had a pretty good, goodish week. I think the the short distance, I qualified for the A final, which was, yeah, I think slightly unexpected. I qualified reasonably comfortably as well. Um, the final itself didn't go as well. And the long distance, I was a bit intimidated by the the distance. I remember starting with a camelback, which oh wow, um, at the time seemed like a good plan. But looking back, I'm a bit um, <laughs> thinking that that is um, rogue. Yeah, great experience. I hadn't done a jack before that, so it was my first. And European youth wasn't really a thing, so it was my was my first representation, um, and definitely gave me a taste for to do more in the future. So I guess that kind of shows quite good mental strength, even at an early age where you've just gone in first uh, kind of international representation and you've already qualified for the A final in the short distance, which I, I guess the qualification is always, even then, was probably the um, mo- one of the most stressful races of the week because it's all on you to qualify for that final. And if you don't, then just sitting on the sideline. I don't, I, did they have a B final in that time or...? Or was that a more late they, they, they edition? Did. I remember that year we called it the Champions Final because there were so, <laughs> so many big names uh, didn't make the cut, actually. So, yeah, I think that made it even even better to have made the A final. So, big kind of first kind of hit the ground running in 2001 then. And then 2002, I don't think you got selected. So, what, what kind of change there? Did did maybe Gigi step up and, and nab your spot then? Is that, <laughs> are you going to call him out? <laughs> I'm not going to put it all on him. Um, uh, so actually what happened there, I left school and I took a gap year. I went to Norway 
Okay. Uh, I moved to Norway in November-ish. Moved to Oslo looking for some work in the city to kind of get into Norwegian life. Ended up working on a sheep farm in the, the mountains in Western Norway. Um, oh, yeah. Three and a half months. <laughs> so I kind of hit the hit the British season not really race sharp, not really tuned in to what I needed to do. This test races didn't go that well. I, I think I actually mispunched in the long distance and the short distance was... Yeah. Ah. Anyway, I, 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 I we didn't deserve that selection that, that year. Learned a few lessons. Did have a great summer in Norway after that. Had some good runs at the Norwegian Champs kind of at the end of their season once I'd kind of got into the, the swing of things. But definitely some lessons about not taking anything for granted, working out what mm. you need to do and actually doing it. Yeah. So I guess that, that kind of transitioned you into going to university. You went to Edinburgh Union, quite a proud member of um, the UOC scene as, as a big rival from from Sheffield um <laughs> you know what was what was that kind of university scene like then for getting you back into that swing of really knuckling down to go for your final jaywalk in in 2003 then yeah really good actually um we had a really good scene in Edinburgh there and like I said guys like Ewan and uh Clive Parry, Bruce Duncan, they were all in their final year when I was in my fresh for first year. And they really, yeah, they looked after me, made sure I got into the swing of training in Edinburgh. Because they were fourth year, they were quite settled. You know, they just wanted to get the training done. And that, that suited me as well of just having, you know, regular times each week, the regular sessions you went to. And I, I think that's been a big uh, a big learning from me from through my career is you get fitter when you train consistently. You get better mm. at things when you do it regularly. So that was really good. And then, yeah, on the competitive side, we had a great UOC v Shuok rivalry. The, the Busas, as they were, were fiercely competitive and the, the UK Relay League. Yeah, they were good times, really good for team spirit. One of my sort of highlights of all the races I'd done was actually, I think, Busa in 2004. And I think this was one of those interesting things that I've heard this theory that the sort of the high you can achieve through sport is a bit independent of actually the level you compete at. The feeling that Usain Bolt gets when he wins the Olympic 100 metres is probably not that dissimilar to the feeling that uh, you know an eight-year-old gets when they win the 100 metres at the school sports day. Mm. And I think mm. that that's, there's something in that, that yeah, winning a great Busa relay, I ran last leg and had a near-perfect run to, to hold off Shuok and while I was out, our girls team had overhauled the Shiok girls team and you know we needed to win both to win the thing overall. So kind I'm of sensing a the theme here. Just being at the bottom of the biggest Yuok pylon ever and seeing Shiok <laughs> sloping off to their minibus to um, to go and sulk. You know, it was just one uh, of those real real highlights. Sorry to rub it in. Yeah, you're telling us as both ex Shiok members. Yeah. That pain that is oof. Maybe we should just stop the interview here. That's, that's <laughs> done. I don't know if I can take any more. But I, I guess that probably, would... That's probably going to be the last time we, we rub it into Shiok. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I guess it's that, that, that would have been... You stopped even trying these days, so... That's, yeah, don't, 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 don't even get me started. <laughs> so that kind of Edinburgh scene, then, that would have pushed you through to 2003 and any, then any transition through to senior as well. Was that kind of helping things... You, you kind of move towards that more... Uh, senior, I hesitate to use the word kind of professional with with orienteering in Britain, but that kind of serious athlete mindset. Yeah, a bit. It definitely it definitely helped bridge that gap because it, it, there's definitely a step up when you go to senior races, and I think that's still true still true now. 
having something to aim for that isn't you know the big team selection mm. you know if it's just running a good relay leg or getting a top 10 in the UK cup or, or something like that because there's a good group going along and you know it's a good weekend away personally I I struggled with the step up to senior not so much with the level of competition but just with the long distance I really struggled to figure out how to race a long distance and how mm. to yeah it was probably a fitness thing just not having the endurance to really um race that far um, mm. particularly in a you know in a weekend like the jk when it's kind of one of three mm. or four races i always find that a bit tough i remember actually my first year as a senior the selection races for that it must have been the european champs i came fourth at the british sprints and you sort of think as a as a first year senior getting a fourth place behind jamie jd and ollie if i remember rightly like pretty big yeah. names and then I was a yeah, close, not close fourth behind it's like you know that should get you get you noticed and get you in a team but mm. the next day I sort of DNF'd the long distance on home fell the way the selections were done back then it was all about you know consistency across the piece and being mm. because you were kind of selected for every distance if you're only going to do something in the sprint then probably weren't going to get a place so I don't remember mm. being particularly bitter about that I just remember it wasn't easy either yeah, there were some tough, tough races out there. Yeah, so I guess let's um, let's let's kind of dive into that uh, that long distance element then. So, two thousand and one Jaywalk, you you had a Camelback for your long distance, kind of a bit intimidated <laughs> by um, the the distance of it in two thousand and one. How did you change that for two thousand and three? And then, because clearly, I guess you're saying that that wasn't quite enough then for for two thousand and four for that next step. Kind of, how did you? How would you have approached a long distance in 2003 versus how you approached it kind of now? Yeah, it's a good a good question. I think, yeah, so the difference from 2001 to three was just, you know, you've had a couple of years doing senior races. I think spending a year in Norway was really good for that. Norwegian long distances are, are tough. If you're doing a junior elite race there, it's going to be a, a 70 minute winning time for the best the best juniors around. So, yeah, and I think the stepping up to senior... I think I do think part of it was just the doing it, you know, the day after a middle distance race or a sprint race or something. I think that was definitely an element. I think the standalone longs were, were a bit better. Yeah, after a couple of years as a senior, chatting to Matt Crane about it and him just saying, look, you just have to go for some long runs. You know, I just I just get a map of the Peak District out and pick a spot, go and run to it and run back you know it could be out three hours and just get used to it and yeah looking back now that's definitely that's definitely how I feel you know I look at a, a race like the British long distance and think well okay I'm gonna be running hard for 100 minutes but now I've done mountain races where I've run hard for three hours so yeah no I can and I think some of the best long races and I've not had many of them but the best long races are ones where I've almost felt like I'm running harder than I can sustain for the length of time I'm racing for. And then you're using the times you need to slow down to navigate as your recovery time. It's almost like a fart leg session. You're running too hard, running too hard, gets a bit tricky. So you ease off, get some oxygen back, figure out what's going on and then push on again. But I can think of less than, you know, less than five times I've actually managed to execute a good race where it feels like that but I think when you have that that good level of fitness and the ability to run hard for for 90 minutes then you can start to get into that approach to 
to racing a long race. Kind of going back to to you as a kind of early senior then, with and thinking about these long distances, were they what you were aiming for? Were you were you going right? I'm going to be a long distance orienteer, or or were you thinking more about the middle or or the sprint that was just kind of early days at that time? But you clearly obviously had a good result with fourth place that year in your first year senior. Um. Yeah, I was definitely all about the sprint. Um, okay. And I had been for actually quite a while before that. Uh, and you say it was early days for the sprint. I mean, sprint started at walk in 2001. I suppose so, yeah. But it had actually, um, and I'll go back to the real start of my sprints, sprintspiration, was um, <laughs> on, I mentioned Scott Joss earlier. So in 1996, we did the first Scott Joss tour to Sweden, our first for a long time, two-week tour, went to Oringen. But I think a couple of days before Oringen, there was a Park World Tour race held nearby. We got taken along to that, and it was just, you know, incredible seeing this. Like, the start was on the roof of a supermarket with this, like, scaffolding <laughs> ramp built up to it, and people getting wow. paraded around, and then yeah just this racing through through a town that you know we just never seen before street races were the things you know where you had to go and write down a lamppost number not this elite discipline where you're you're racing in full view of the public and we actually there was a spectator race so as a 13 year old i did my first sprint race and just loved it way back then and was like this is this is racing to me this is what i get so yeah it was disappointing to find out that it wasn't a discipline that jaywalk or anything like that i guess because because it was coming into walk, we were doing sprint trainings on squad camps back then. I think the the British team were very focused on adapting to this new discipline. I think you know that they reaped the rewards when Jamie won in two thousand and three. So yeah, we were doing those trainings. I was loving sprint trainings. We'd do them on junior camps as well. I remember saying to saying to Jason Inman, who was coaching the the junior team at the time, I think I could be like top ten at Jaywalk Sprint if there was one, but there isn't. So. <laughs> um, what should I do kind of thing so yeah so it was good um, I guess finishing off the university years going to world unis in my final year as a student and getting on the podium in the sprint there uh, with the fourth place yeah which was really good to finally get that chance to race at a sprint at the top level I remember comes back to Matt Crane again I remember him saying to me afterwards I think we were on the bus back after the prize giving you could just see me kind of with this sort of smug look on my face it's like you've been you've been waiting for that chance haven't you you've been you've been wanting that for a while it's like oh yes <laughs> and finally where where was that um world unis uh slovakia it was in oh, okay Kulshitsa. oh so where jaywalk was in 20 yeah exactly the same map as the as the jaywalk map yeah oh really okay yeah. <laughs> Oh, that, um, yeah, uh, city centre kind of thing, wasn't it, I think, I remember. Yeah, it was, was city centre, and it was actually, I remember it was very like Edinburgh, but flat. You know, it had a sort of big boulevard with lots of alleyways off of it, and a sort of church in the middle. I remember training for that in Edinburgh on like the original prototype Edinburgh City race map, um, <laughs> and being like, when I got the right alleyway off of the lawn market in Edinburgh, during the festival when there's like 20,000 people in the way like <laughs> yes I'm, I'm ready for this sprint race in Slovakia whatever you've got in store so so I guess building up to that race were you just religiously going out and doing that kind of session every week you know alleyways putting yourself in that kind of pressure zone of having to 
pick out those tight corners kind of with people milling around I'd, I'd love to say that it was like that and definitely that's how we trained laterally but you have to remember back then that sprint maps weren't really a thing in Britain and urban maps, urban races weren't a thing so we didn't have a, a big supply of maps to train on I, guess, I think the map we had for the, of Edinburgh there you'd probably it was more like a sort of open street map map we were using than a um, oh, right, wow. proper sprint spec map so yeah, no training. Specific training was limited. That was more about just being fit and ready and um, having a plan for the race. So how how do you contrast that ability to prepare at that stage compared to what you had in your final years as a um, the senior member of the squad? What was that contrast like? Was it kind of almost almost night and day by the sounds of it? Yeah, I think and I think the the big difference in approach was back then. I sort of knew I was. I had some kind of talent for sprint racing, but I didn't want to investigate it too closely. I didn't want to kind of lift the lid up and see why it worked. I just wanted to let it work. And that worked and that got me it got me that good result then and a few other sort of decent domestic sprint results. But it, it hit a bit of a bit of a plateau. So I think later on, yeah, I started to really think about technique and think about um, how to make improvements. Um, how to how to change what you change and improve what you do. So, yeah, later on it got a lot more analytical. Okay, so that that plateau then is that what came in about two thousand six. So I think looking at your results, you've had your first World Cup appearance um, for the senior team in France in two thousand six, but then there was a four year break before the next one in two thousand ten. Kind of what what happened there? Was that the end of university? You know, the start of a career where you just took a break, or was that a conscious decision just to step away from orienteering for a bit? Um, a little bit of both so it was definitely end of university and starting a career I felt like I put quite a lot into that that World Unis and the, the World Cup in France came off the back of the World Unis uh, while I was still sort of figuring figuring out what I was doing a little I put a lot into that and I could see how much more work it would take to get to the next level and I just thought I wasn't quite sure that was worth it I didn't really want to be a kind of orienteering bum just not getting on with life because I wanted to go from being fourth in a university sprint to you know whatever the next step would be a kind of world cup uh, team member or something so yeah um went and got a proper job uh, and my proper job was to train to be an actuary so that was quite a big commitment you know mm. when you get a, a role like that you're getting a lot of support to study exams and um, contribute to the company as well so i chose to prioritize that yeah, you've got to do all the corporate networking and the shaking the hands and stuff, yeah. That sort of thing, yeah. Play nicely, dress up smart. Um, so much simpler just going and running around the forest chasing flags, got to be said. <laughs> yeah, it really feels like it sometimes, yeah, it really does. But uh, it does have some benefits as well. Um, and actually, one of the benefits I found was, turns out it was possible to have a life outside of work and could still do some running. So around that time, I got... I wasn't travelling as much for orienteering and training camps and things like that, but got more into road running, cross country, hill running um, around that time and orienteering as well. And I was very much for a couple of years in a kind of, yeah, just taking each week as it came almost, doing whatever was on the calendar. Um, I was running reasonably well, um, enjoying, you know, winning tin pot hill races or (laughs) the odd sort of orienteering race or whatever as well. But yeah, I guess then what changed to 
bring me back in was actually I went on in 2008 after a couple of years of working went on holiday to Norway randomly I think I'd gone over at Dunolfest and then wanted to go and visit someone up in Trondheim and got there and realised that two years later that was where the world champs were going to be walking around the city centre it emerged that the the sprint race was actually going to be in the city centre so this is Norway's second biggest city huge um, student town with a really big student orienteering club and the race is going to be right there it's like well that's going to be like crowd like you've never seen it in an orienteering race mm. that's going to be I almost want to be part of that yeah that was kind of change of change of focus then going from this flighty one week to the next to going okay big picture let's get back on the back on the orienteering scene start to build towards a, a world champs team in in two years time and what were the crowds like in that race did it live up to so, the hype spoiler i did i did make that team so yeah, yeah. That was one step. Um, <laughs> they were yeah it was great it was fantastic it wasn't a, a straightforward route to getting there i sort of thought that okay 2008 so maybe i should try and get in a world cup team in 2009 to just give that sort of stepping stone and a bit more experience which was a good plan um like all the best plans it came unstuck halfway around the jk sprint race when i tripped over dislocated my shoulder and wrote off the rest of the season um, which was yeah a <laughs> bit of a bump in the road um, there. <laughs> so the next year it was kind of it was all in and yeah training went well jk sprint went well i think that was the selection race maybe there was yeah a second selection race in erskine it wasn't cut and dry but i think the fact i'd kind of made my intentions known and had clear motivation to to get there selectors gave me some credit and and got there and yeah i, I remember getting there and thinking this is a this has been a big commitment you know managing training amongst the full-time work and the, the stress of those selection races and things i've got here now all in one effort and then i can go back to being a a week-to-week civvy <laughs> and um kicked off yeah it was a race like no other nothing i'd done before then yeah the crowds were incredible i say the start and finish were in the central square i think they actually took us from quarantine into the square like through a shopping center so i think the, the minus one line was kind of in a you know automatic glass door and then oh, just right. emerged out into this you oh, know cool. just sort of cauldron of noise that's good i mean there were the, like most of these things the, this, the actual course itself was a lot quieter there were a few people out on the streets and up um the middle of the course was around the fortress up on the hill so yeah there was a few people there but it was yeah it was a good really good experience i just remember crossing the line thinking well that went well and god damn i need more of that <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good hit uh, get me some more of that so yeah so started um the six-year saga of uh of world championships so so did it feel quite natural then that being your first international race back it, almost like you'd never left or or were there more nerves or was it just that kind of you know you're a working guy you're there like you say for just a 15 minute effort and uh, there's no stress behind that yeah, I think the nerves probably came more in the heats than the final. I think once I got through the heats, it was like, well, okay, I'm here and I belong. And I guess getting a solid result off the back as well. Yeah, it made it feel quite natural. I think, yeah, I just I just remember excitement about being on the start line. I think I, yeah, I used to have a photo I sort of grabbed off the video feed of it of just that, yeah, bouncing, 
bouncing on the start line, ready to go. So then two years later, you had um, what looks like kind of the best season of your career. You had PBs over the 5K, the 10K, you got a top 10 at Wok. Um, you ran first leg on the Wok relay as well. Uh, that tallied in with silver for Scott in the sprint and um, Tessa, your, uh, your now wife, was on the, on the podium. Was she fourth that year, I think, as well? Yeah, she was in fifth. The sprint. Fifth. Yeah. Kind of, what, what happened that year that it all went, <laughs> it all went so well for the, uh, the kind of Edinburgh sprint contingent? Yeah, good question. And it's easy to draw lots of conclusions, which might not be actually that meaningful. I think personally, I had a good, consistent block of training through the winter, came out pretty fit. I had a bit more forest focus. Yeah, that was also the year I won British middle and long in the forest that spring. Didn't win the sprint. Some guy called Chris Jones turned up and beat <laughs> me in that one. Wow. Um, but, um, he was living with me at that stage, that's why. No, oh, right, okay. You were <laughs> off the door. Oh, no. Actually, no, that was before he lived with me. That was when he lived with my brother, so I think he can take the credit. <laughs> one thing that definitely changed was, so like I said, I'd, um, when I started work, I started studying to be an actuary. Um, that went quite well when I wasn't doing the world champs. Didn't go so well through sort of 2010 to 12, but I was I was persevering, perhaps slightly foolishly. After not passing an exam for a couple of years, I decided to to park them for a bit. So yeah, in 2013, that was the first first world champs when I'd been fully focused on it. I was focused on on work and running, but not but not studying. So that that was probably one element. Yeah, another aspect, I got a nice arrangement with work. I actually spent a month in Finland before the World Champs. Took a work laptop and did some remote working, which nowadays seems completely normal and wouldn't be a big deal. But back then was a, a change in culture from mm. um, in our office. But it was good. So yeah, I'd gone out there. I think the test races, because it was all quite remote in Finland, it was quite far north. Not as far north as Eupola is this year, but yeah. it was it was a long way. <laughs> Not up so, in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, exactly. And the test races were out there, and like I think three weeks beforehand or two weeks beforehand. So it just seemed like it was a lot of travelling to go out there and come back and then go out again. So yeah, I went out and just had a really nice settled couple of weeks before walk, kind of getting tuned in and trying to get ready for the the relay there as well. Yeah, it was a good sprint, and I think the. The interesting thing there was that sprint, because I remember taking, I guess, a broader look. So I'd started doing walk in 2010, went to France in 2011. During that walk in France, it had been announced that walk was coming to Scotland in 2015. Mm. So at that point, I'd been thinking, okay, six years in a row of going for walk sprint feels like a lot. You know, are you going to stay fresh? Are you going to keep that cycle of training for that race I thought actually what could be good here is I'll do 11 and 12 and then I'll skip 13 looks like it might be a forest sprint in Finland as well so I'm not sure that'll suit me as well so I'll skip that (laughs) come back do 14 as a sort of warm-up for for the home walk yeah that's that's a good plan (laughs) and then went to Switzerland in 12 and came 11th one second outside the top 10 I was like oh Oh. goodness I'm just gonna have to I'm gonna have to keep doing this until I get a top 10 I'm right right Uh, okay back in for back in for Finland put a lot of effort in like say going out there for a month and stopping the studying got that top 10 with a ninth place felt like a really hard-earned 
place and then it's like oh in actual fact i'm only 1.1 seconds ahead of 11th place have i really is that all i've improved in the last year <laughs> uh, it's funny how just the little margins like that the little sort of random variation as uh, as we'd say um yeah one side of the tree exactly different yeah. But it was good, and I think of the of the six walks I did, I think that was my favourite course as well. I think the planning was there was exceptional, um, really good route choice, really good variety. What makes it, what makes a good sprint course in your opinion? Yeah, I think I think variety. I think there's a there's a sweet spot of technicality. You want to be able to find the best route in the time available. It doesn't it shouldn't be so technical that you know you have to sit down afterwards and have a cup mm. of tea and, and work out what you should have done. <laughs> It should mm. be solvable in the time there, but only if you're really on it. I remember the, the planner after that one saying his aim was to have sort of three possible routes for every leg. Kind of almost one you didn't want to take and two that were pretty even, but one of them was slightly better than the other. Mm. And they did, a, they did a lot of sort of, I think, opening up private gardens and ways through and backyards and things to to get that much scope into what you know on the map we'd had beforehand looked like a fairly unpromising area so moving on then from from 2013 you'd had that peak you you kind of were all in again for walk in two years time no temptations to to skip 2014 and have the plan break then instead of in 2013 yeah it never crossed my mind i think um venice was going to be special as well Mm. yeah we'd been thinking about that one for a while soppy story was that uh, Tess and I went on our first date together to Venice in 2010 to go and do the urban <laughs> race hello so, first date uh, uh, tra- training camp first date oh, um, right. story. all worked out in the end um, so yeah that was that was always going to be on the agenda and having done the first leg of the relay in in Finland kind of had an eye on doing that again and then the other thing in 2014 was the it was the first year with a sprint relay mm. so yeah mm. we were keen to keen to be part of that as an experience racing on venice was probably one of the career highlights getting a boat to the start and just racing around admittedly not the most touristy bit of venice but just yeah to be i think you'll be and, thankful for that <laughs> yeah well absolutely yeah yeah but the the finish was out on the i forget the, the name of it the sort of southern um, promenade and that was yeah that was pretty cool it's pretty nice to finish walk and then go and have a, a pizza with one of the best tourist views in the world that's not too bad is it yeah it's pretty good and we said that we were doing the sprint relay the next couple of days maybe didn't have pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and did the, the the sprint relay being such a a new event kind of give you any new impetus new fire in your training or was it still quite individual focused with um, more of that on the side yeah, I think it was just, it was so new that we didn't really know how it was going to go. Um, I think we'd done maybe one or two lower key races before. We were all focused on the individual race. Mm. And then the sprint relay was two days later. And we, I think we didn't even know who was going to run it until the night before the race. I seem to remember, oh, right. I seem to remember having discussions between Chris Scott and I about who were going to be the two boys to, to get in. And then it was a bit tarnished in the end. So it was in a, a, an old Italian town, cobbled streets and paving stones, and uh, ended up happening in a thunderstorm. And it was just like running on an ice rink. It was absolutely treacherous. So it was one of those ones where you sort of finish and you're like, did I actually race that? I'm not sure. I was just like, not falling over all the way around. So. One where you just can't get the power down at all. Exactly, exactly. Not what you want at walk. 
Um, so then, I guess we'll go we'll go straight into it for for 2015. You've reached it. You've got to Scotland, home world champs um, up near Inverness. What was what was that like? Just the the build up. You, I think we had the selection races. I seem to remember they were in the Lake District in May or early June, possibly. Got selected from them. You know what was what was that like? That final kind of six week build up, eight week build up. Um, did you feel you had your spot nailed beforehand, or or was there a bit of nerves even in the selection races? Um, yeah. So the selection race was actually in Elgin. I didn't miss punch, but I missed a control and had to go back and ended up racing the rest of the course with Scott. And I think right. I was, yeah, I, so I kind of screwed it up, but fortunately selectors were looking favourably on me and gave me, the, gave me the chance. I think I'd kind of done enough to show form. I can't remember the order. There'd been a, there'd been a sprint race in Stirling around then as well, a world ranking one that I'd won. So I'd kind of shown I was in, in form and good to go but I've no doubt that some of the uh, some of the younger guys were probably a bit aggrieved that I got in ahead of them um, <laughs> but uh, I think with the way the the schedule worked and with the sprint relay that actually there was quite a few people got their got their chance um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a completely it was, different team wasn't it for the sprint relay it was yeah and that was one of the that was one of the aspects of that world champs that yeah it was perhaps not ideal just the the scheduling I think the schedule went sprint qualifier, sprint relay, sprint final, three days in a row. Mm. And it's really hard to know what races to do in that situation. And particularly when the sprint relay result depends on everyone else in the team making the same decision, then there was a bit of uncertainty mm. about kind of what girls were going to do it and um, what level the, the sort of the team could be at. So, yeah, that was, that was one aspect. I mean, I'd... Um, I'd not stopped working. I'd gone part-time for the six months before that World Champs just to have kind of as good preparation as I could. I don't think not getting in the team had ever been a worry for me. Maybe it had, just when you when you make that much commitment to something. But I sort of felt like I knew what I needed to do to to get in shape, to get in a position to p- produce a good result at, at that level. That was the advantage of doing it five years in a row before it had kind of had a <laughs> pretty good well tried and tested um, formula yeah, it was good experience preparing for it it's a little bit tinged with regret now just because the race itself didn't go as well as I'd hoped I mean I'm really proud of the the shape I got in so yeah you'd mentioned I got a 5k PB in 2013 but I was actually faster in 2015 I think I got a track PB a week before walk um, mm. oh really I'm, oh, I missed that one so it was like yeah I was in as good shape as I'd ever been for that walk. I remember going doing a morning morning jog the the morning of the final, feeling like this is exactly how I want to feel before the biggest race of my of my life. You know, I feel good, I feel light, I feel fast. Let's go. So mm-hmm. yeah, really proud of that. I think just yeah, the way I executed the race, I just made some sort of silly little hesitations and you know missed an alleyway that I should have known inside out because I'd had all the opportunities to to recce that terrain and I think that was maybe one of the aspects that in hindsight at the time I thought I was doing everything fine but in hindsight mm. I think with it being a home walk it was kind of like where do you draw the line of how much prep you do you know I, I could have gone and walked around 
forest because it was a, an open embargo you, you couldn't go orienteering or anything but you could walk around and get familiar with the streets I could have done that every weekend but I'd probably done less of that than the actual the teams who'd come and visited and done training camps mm. there specifically for that purpose mm. almost because you know something was holding me back from really committing to that that level of sort of geekiness that so before that one the only one only walk I'd done with an open embargo had been France in eleven. All the others had had actually a, a much tighter, closed off embargo. Yeah, it was just a slightly different way of preparing that I, I don't think I quite got right. And yeah, I mean, I'm really proud to have got another top 20 and kept that run of, of results going. But yeah, it wasn't what I was aiming for either. I think did it feel gone, very different, that World Championships? Was it, did you feel some, maybe more pressure on yourself? Yeah, I think so a little. I remember I didn't sleep all that well in the build-up to it. I think you were trying to do everything perfectly and then getting maybe a little bit stressy if things weren't perfect. You're like, you know, that classic line there thinking, why am I not sleeping? I want to be sleeping kind mm. of thing. Um, I, you know, I'd always had this, the, the pattern results had gone 18th, 12th, 11th, 9th. Mm. So it was on a nice um, upward trajectory. <laughs> and then in, in Venice the previous year, I'd been on target for, well, touch and go for the podium, definitely seventh, maybe sixth, with, I think, three controls to go. And then just, yeah, just one loss in concentration cost me 20 seconds and dropped me down down to 13th. But Oof. in my mind, I'd got almost to the podium there. It was mm. definitely the closest or the furthest through a race I'd got in that position. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, that, that could have been. And that was off of actually not being in the best shape that year. So then in the following years, like, okay, I get in shape. There's definitely actually making that podium happen. And, you know, if it all goes well, there's even, you know, there's medal potential there. So then to actually complete the parabola and get back to where I started with another 18th place was, uh, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a disappointment. And did that draw a line for you? Was that, I know you said six years was quite a long time to go all in for every sprint walk. But did that kind of affirm in your mind that that's me, that's me done? Or, or was there an urge to go for it one last time? Uh, before that walk, I'd, I'd known that was going to be my last one. I wanted to get back to, yeah, having some uh, a less structured season, perhaps, and a less um, mm. less of that big big focus. Yeah, and and you're never thinking of a comeback now. You know, another home walk in 2022, <laughs> uh, make, make it a double. <laughs> Not the way I'm feeling right now. Um, <laughs> That's no. the answer of a politician. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to be involved, keen to, keen to help others um, succeed there. I, at one stage I was saying I'll never run walk for Great Britain again. But if there was a Scotland team, that might interest me. So, uh, well, it's highly more likely after the last six months. So, <laughs> so yeah. Maybe. I'm, I'm not saying never, but uh, equally with... Because um, I'm not living in Edinburgh at the moment, but planning to move back there in the next year or so and it'll be quite awkward trying to stick to the Edinburgh embargoes um, Mm. if I was actually living there it's just about manageable while I'm 400 miles away (laughs) (laughs) well I know they've they've, um, managed to get a path through to Hive so you're all you're all sorted on that one (laughs) yeah I'm really looking forward to to teams coming over and sort of trying to wrecky the embargoes and finding this dead end path that finishes at the door of a nightclub and thinking, well, why have the why have the organisers sort of given us permission <laughs> to 
to walk down this far down this street. There must be some reason to go into this this nightclub. Let's go in. (laughs) (laughs) And then they'll never leave. It could be a (laughs) tactic to ruin some international careers. Some of them them do like a boogie. So I guess, (laughs) moving on from that, uh, (laughs) after 2015, you've kind of off and on got involved in some coaching with the GB team. Um, I kind of want to dive in specifically into your philosophy around that. So in 2016, you ran a or helped run a training camp for the World Unis team that year, along with um, Eddie Nicholas. So I think that's the first time I've really had such in-depth analytical coaching and training in the kind of style that you did it. So timing sections of terrain to see where you could run the fastest compared to to other sections so through dark green through light green through white uphill downhill paths um kind of were you that analytical in your preparation for all of your world champs or was that something you looked to bring to other runners after after you kind of hung up the compass yeah good question a bit of both i'm glad you glad you enjoyed that um, oh yeah that's fantastic that training camp we definitely did a bit of that and it wasn't wasn't just me definitely a team effort with um the good lady sprint sprint orienteer her indoors and um chris jones also had a pretty analytical approach so there were things we would do i think when we were doing it for sprint walks we'd usually have a specific question we were trying to answer that we do some analysis to help with i remember training for venice trying to work out because the whole thing with venice is it's very flat and it's you know it's it's paved all the way the only thing to really mean that the shortest route wouldn't be the best would be if there were more bridges to cross so we had to kind of work out what was the how, what did it cost you to cross a bridge versus doing the same distance going straight mm-hmm. so yeah i remember planning some training exercises on the, the unembargoed bits of venice to test this you know you'd have a route choice with three bridges on one and one on the other and see what the time difference was and then go and crunch the numbers and work out and um, that sort of thing another one was what's the cost of going around a bend versus a, a straight route? Is it ever worth taking a longer route that's got less navigation, less less to think about? Just looking at your GPS, looking at split times from those sorts of sorts of legs and training courses to, to try and bottom out what you should do. I think it's important when you're trying to analyse things that way to be able to turn it back to something you can actually use in a race. Mm, I was just about to ask was it was it useful did you use it yeah I mean so our conclusion on the Venice Bridges was it might be a couple of seconds but if you take a couple of seconds to count how many bridges there are on every leg it's Mm. not going to be worth it so just just use your eye and take the shortest route and you're unlikely to lose much so it was really that simple things with working out bends or not it seemed to be kind of irrelevant so it's like yeah go shortest was our was our conclusion I think, yeah, there were specific examples like that. I think uh, at the time, it wasn't an approach. It wasn't something I ever used in the forest, that kind of analytical approach. And I think, yeah, now as I look as look in on how people are training and how I can potentially help people is there's a lot of potential there. I think there's a lot of data that we're not using or we're not using it objectively to work out where there are opportunities to improve I'm looking at things like like the route choices in kind of continental terrain, like you, you see in Czech Republic, where you can have a route that's a K longer but has no climb versus something that's straight but mm. has 200 metres of climb. How many people actually know 
which they would run faster if it was a straight running race. Mm. How do you estimate that on the run? How do you measure distance? Is it just all by eye? Or can you have a, a simple rule of thumb that you can use to to give you a give you a method to make the right choices. You make so many choices in orienteering course, but are you making them for the right reasons? Mm. Or even can you can you put that into a a training environment where you go and try and do you run at a set pace or set heart rate on a treadmill for that leg length with that climb versus the distance of the round route and you analyze how fatigued you are afterwards? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a bit of that. I I prefer to do it in a a more looking at what you actually do in races type situation. Okay. To, so, so less sterile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you lose a little bit of the, the scientific side of it. And it, it, it's probably more valuable if it's like, well, okay, it's an uphill, but it's an uphill through like green forest rather than an uphill on a track. Yeah, there's those, those kind of differences as well that are hard to, to measure in a lab. Plus, I think your treadmills are bit different to mine if they can simulate slogging up a uh, <laughs> you know a check hillside at sort of 40 degrees or something like that mm. oh, you've got to put some weights on your back that's yeah. <laughs> but a disclaimer i do not advise doing that that is, that is bad gym bad etiquette idea. um so i guess you can see where you can help people you can see where you can bring a lot out of other people's training now that you're kind of looking in it with more of a bird's eye view um is that what got you involved in the um gb team at the world cup last year uh, kind of what made you take on that role yeah so that came about uh, it was around the time they were looking for a, a sprint coach paid sprint coach position for the, the british team and ed nicholas the team manager at the time who's a good friend of mine um, approached me asked you know was i interested and i was sort of like well no i'm not really interested in you know a paid position i've got this job that keeps me more than busy enough but like I do want to be involved and, and help in some way. So yeah, keep me in mind. After the summer, I think it was supposed to be Liz Campbell and Joe Stevenson were going to be the staff for that camp, but then Liz had to drop out. Um, so yeah, I got called in at the later on to, to go and help out. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really good to be part of the team there. Really mixed team with some yeah some youngsters and some seasoned seasoned experts now. So yeah, it was good to get involved, work out where I could help, where I could add value. It's a diff- very different thing to help someone at their first World Cup compared to someone like Chris, who you know a couple <laughs> of years ago I was kind of collaborating with and sharing ideas and I wasn't going to go in and tell Chris how to sprint around here. But, um, <laughs> but there are things you can do to, to make sure the right things are being thought about and thought about in the right way. And yeah, and particularly with new disciplines like the knockout sprints, the runner's choice methods coming in and that sort of thing even though i'd never run them i was able to kind of think about them a bit objectively and suggest approaches that people can use to to deal with that yeah it was good to good to be part of and it was obviously a pretty successful weekend so i'll take all the credit for that (laughs) the main difference was it unusual actually kind of stepping in and and like you say with chris you and chris collaborating on so many walks together was it quite an an odd feeling for you to then be managing him um yeah a little bit although yeah I think there's some some very professional people in the, the british team that kind of know how to get on with the job when it matters so yeah it wasn't the wasn't the most challenging of of team management roles uh, the main thing was just keeping everyone with enough food and enough interest to to keep going and then yeah and the the, the knockout sprint days 
you know that's that's a day <laughs> that was that was hard work as a as a manager the, the the middle distance and the individual sprint were kind of fine you know you get people to the start they go and do their thing then you mop them down at the end <clears> but <throat> the um the knockout when it was four races so there's four quarantines four sort of build-ups start lists the the method for this seeding in the, the mm. first knockout round so you still had which way round it was you had men were still finishing and working out if they qualified at the same time as the women were in the sports hall choosing which heat to go into mm. in this oh wow um yeah in this real cauldron of um atmosphere as you you choose who you want to avoid or who you want to race in each round so trying to steer people in the right direction there at the same time as figuring out if schminty's sprint finish was going to get reinstated and um yeah whoever else was was in contention was, was sorting things out there so yeah that was that was full on that was definitely a learning thing. yeah well like well some other nations have a lot more people who are part of the team who aren't racing and then you know with the british team there's a couple of you guys got to be across you know across the whole team and making sure everything's going okay and if you're ever needed for someone else or if there's an emergency you know it's quite a tough job yeah yeah i definitely have a, a lot of respect for more respect for now for the, the guys who've helped us out along the along the way too many to mention but hugely appreciate everything that's been done for us in the past and what do you think of the knockout sprint format do you think you'd have liked to race it yeah definitely it looks great fun i think i did do i mean i did do do, do one almost my world my, my comeback world cup debut was a knockout sprint in stockholm in 2010 i made it to uh, yeah and that was i guess jumping back to where we started was <laughs> having had that break and then coming back so this was a month before my walk debut did a knockout sprint I mean first I was amazed to get I think I needed top 30 in the qualification to get in scraped into mm. that and then found myself on a start line with I'm not gonna remember everyone but Olav Lindenis was definitely in my heat and a couple of Swiss boys Fabian Hertner and Matthias Muller maybe yeah and two or three others and just being like whoa I am out of my depth here what what is going on um yeah and not being a million miles away by the finish but yeah not progressing beyond there i think i think Gigi did well that day um but yeah the format was a bit different back then it would have been good to do to do a bit more of that and yeah particularly now it's going to be an official world champs discipline it's going to be exciting to see where that one goes definitely oh the final question i guess so you're still um you're still running you're still racing well um, kind of what's the uh, what's the immediate plans now just uh, keep trucking along and, and lend lend a help helping hand where you can yeah not many not many racing ambitions anymore I mean since I finished world champs orienteering I've done two long distance mountain running world champs um, so those were quite good for something different definitely definitely feel like I can do long distance now uh, <laughs> more than when I was uh, starting with a a camelback back in 2001 um <laughs> yeah i'm not sure i've got great ambitions having moved to the the flatlands of east anglia a couple of years ago and having a, a lengthy commute in and out of london um my running's taken a bit of a bit of a hit so um just yeah enjoying racing for fun gonna do some orienteering this year but got some got an ultra in the end of april as well and then yeah we'll see what this see what the summer holds but uh, looking forward to hopefully helping out with some uh, British team stuff and yeah just 
generally generally being around and enjoying it all. So thank you very much to Murray for chatting to us on the run-in. We will be back again in another couple of weeks with more interviews, more analysis, more previews of some of the Britain's races coming up as the season starts to kind of get underway. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>